Dear Jesus, give us what we need from your word tonight. We ask this in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The graduating seniors are on my mind. All of those seniors who are about to change their living situation, move back home, or maybe to a new apartment, or to a new school. For some of you, the last several years at Grove City College have been difficult. For some of you, they've been wonderful. And for a couple, they've been both difficult and wonderful at the same time. Uh, Certainly, these years have been impactful. You're not the same as you were when you were 18. You've been formed and shaped and deformed and then reformed and then shaped again. And uh, I am reminiscing uh, this evening about my own graduation from Eastern University when Dr. David Black handed me a very expensive diploma. And I was thinking about younger Ethan, 22-year-old Ethan, and I'm wondering what a now 36-year-old Ethan would say to a 22-year-old Ethan. And I've come up with four things that I wish I had known at my own graduation. Uh, Four things that are largely derived from the perspective of Psalm 23. So I hope this sermon isn't just for me and not just for our graduates, but is in some sense for all of us. The first thing that I wish I had known when I graduated college, I wish I had known who lives at the top of the pyramid. David says in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Uh, You know, the imagery of Psalm 23 is largely derived from David's own adolescence and experience. Before he received this unexpected promotion to be the king of the Jews, he was a shepherd. He tended uh, animals, took care of them, made sure that they were nurtured, well-fed, well-herded. And later, he received the anointing of God to be the king over a a small but powerful empire. And you may know that one of the ancient Near Eastern descriptions for the monarchy is shepherding. The early kings were called shepherds. Sometimes gods were called shepherds because the responsibility of a shepherd and the responsibility of a monarch had some overlap. Uh, You had to govern and tend your herd, as it were. So here is David in a position of unrivaled power, at least in his own nation, acknowledging, acknowledging, not in private but before the world, that he is not the one at the top of the pyramid. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. There is something um, very impactful and important about that lesson for us. The lure for human beings, ever since the garden, is to seek to obscure or replace the top of the pyramid with something else, someone else. Remember the fall in the garden, the fall in Genesis 3, wasn't so much a devolution into wicked and uh, degraded behavior. It was instead a lust to be a sovereign. It was 
the desire to be divinized, to be a person who had a larger sphere than what was granted originally by God. And this is the temptation always, always to replace or shift or move that person at the top of the pyramid to another place in that pyramid. We can do this with heroes. They could be professor heroes. I'm sure some of you have a few of those. Or particular writers. Uh, And if we lived in another era, maybe politicians would be your heroes. Or or different ideas. Ideas can take uh, the, the, the top of the pyramid or seek to. People have very grand ideas about uh, patriotism or inclusion or all sorts of other ideas and words. And sometimes what we do is we take or seek to take Jesus from the top of the pyramid and use him as a support for other ideas that we have placed at the top of the pyramid, making them the governing, tending impulse instead of the one who actually is at the top of the pyramid who ought to govern all other ideas. We can put ourselves at the top of the pyramid. If you have the Messiah complex where you seek to put at peace all of the other personalities in your life, you will gain some peace in your life if you can just make everybody else's world more normative and tranquil, then you are bearing a burden that God did not give you because you're not the sovereign and you can't possibly do that. Other people like to put themselves on the top of the pyramid in terms of their own influence or control. But I want to say that to place oneself or something else at the top of a pyramid is an exhausting idolatry that ought to be abandoned as soon as possible. It's far better to let God be God because he's the only God who's ever going to be God. Coping with that sooner than later is just good for our own mental, emotional, and spiritual health. The governing and tending principle at the top of the pyramid is, after all, forever secure. David knew this and could publicly acknowledge it, that the Lord is my shepherd. It takes courage to know that there is a higher power that is higher than we are, that there is a rock that is higher than we are. And to rely on that rather than ourselves or a substitute is simply good for us. I wish I had known who lived on the top of the pyramid. Second, I wish my personal relationship with Jesus Christ was more personal. I wish that my 22-year-old self would have deliberately sought after God uh, in a heart-to-heart manner. Notice that the grammar of this psalm is very personal. David writes in the first person, I and my, not we and our. He is speaking about his own direct relationship uh, with God. It's not also personal in terms of grammar, but the content. David celebrates the ways, the multiplicity of ways that God has come through for him personally. David experienced God as a provider. I shall not be in want. As a source of recovery, he restores my soul. As a steadying companion, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. And a source of hope. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David understood that the events of his life, from provision to pain, were inextricably connected to God, a benevolent and invasive God. You see, David wasn't a man who only knew about God. 
he actually began to know God himself. And that's the Christian hope, really, that a relationship could be established where our Christianity becomes more than trivial pursuit. And I think for many years, particularly my years in college, that my Christianity was a lot like trivial pursuit. It was a collection of data. I just wanted to memorize a lot of facts about Scripture and different theological movements, mostly so that I could combat people and win arguments. I mean, there's a noble cause. Yeah, really forwarding the kingdom with that one. Uh, What it did was it made out of me a very well-informed Pharisee. And I regret those years or certainly the imbalance of those years. I forgot the summary commandment, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm not calling for our faith to be less cerebral. I think it ought to be in some ways more cerebral than it is, but it ought to be more than cerebral. I wish I had spent as much time praying and soaking in Scripture as I did perusing articles, books, and blogs about praying and soaking in Scripture. I wish my personal relationship with Jesus was more personal. Third, I wish I had known that faith was not the equivalent of a Tylenol PM. Friends, I love Tylenol PM. Tylenol PM, generally speaking, makes my life a lot better. Uh, If you haven't taken them, they're really terrific. You take three, I'm telling you what, you can go to bed and you'll you'll start to feel warm and cozy, and then you'll fall asleep for nine or ten hours and you'll feel a little groggy in the morning, but you'll think that, you know, you're on vacation because that's, you know, because you're uh, you're so rested, so relaxed. And I assumed for a variety of reasons, that Christian trust, Christian faith, was supposed to make my life easier, always. That it was like taking a Tylenol PM for my emotions. I could numb out. I could just feel better all the time. Feel refreshed, invigorated, and then, because of it, joyful. You know, Psalm 23, while it's known for its calming natural imagery, it's it's agrarian Uh, sense. It also includes deeply unsettling images. Did you notice that? He restores my soul. It assumes that your soul is in need of restoration. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death means that you are in mortal danger and might not make it out of this conundrum. And then he sets a table before before you in the presence of your enemies means that even when you're in God's will, you've got enemies out there. So even in the midst of the calming tones of this psalm, which is often read to people as they're dying, in the midst of it, there is the acknowledgement of real hardship, uh, that life is rife with mortal threats, and faith in Christ does not etherize us into an emotional coma. We are not promised a Novocaine existence, but we are promised something which is a steadying companionship, that we are not alone. Notice the change in grammar in this psalm. Throughout the beginning of the psalm, the language David uses for God is he. Third person. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He revives my soul and guides me. But then, whenever David is going through 
the pit and the mire, the grammar changes from he to you. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. That whenever the uh, nightmarish scenarios strike, God is never closer. He is making the point in some way that the personal relating of God it becomes most prominent whenever we're in the pit, whenever we suffer. There will always be a pierced, punctured hand on our shoulders at that time. This is from one minister's funeral sermon offered at the funeral of his own son who had committed suicide. He said, Scripture is not around for anyone's protection, just for everyone's unending support. That is what God gives us. Minimum protection, maximum support. I would not be standing here were I not upheld. And we know as believers who see life through the prism of the cross that even the worst suffering can be by the shepherd of our souls redeemed. Do you remember Estella from Great Expectations? I mean, you all read it, right? Estella said uh, at the end, you know, she was a crazy person, Estella, right? I mean, wow, a lot, lot going on there. But she said at the end, suffering has been stronger than all other teaching. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. I wish I'd known that faith was not the equivalent of a Tylenol PM. It's actually something much grander. Lastly, I wish I had known that God truly cared about me. That I was not for a moment forgotten or overlooked. And that my whole life was awash in heavenly concern. You know, David experiences the full scope of God's care. God is for David like a shepherd rather than a butcher seeking to nurture him. God is for David like a reliable GPS leading David to the right roads. God is for David like an unflappable friend uh, when he drudges through life's horror show shoulder to shoulder with David. Uh, God is for David like a protective father shielding David from his enemies. And God is for David like a priest uh, leading him to the house of the Lord, a picture of eternity and heaven. David's permanent residence. God's care for David is broad and deep. David expresses that here, and that is true for all of us. Jesus taught us this. He said when you look at nature, when you watch PBS, and you think about grass, and you think about birds, know that God cares about grass, and God cares about birds, but he cares more about you and always will. Your next chapter in life, it might be unknown, or you might think it's really secure. It might be a relationship, a marriage, a job, a resume, getting into a graduate program, or entering well into a graduate program. You might just have a lot of question marks. But whatever it is, you are always held in the everlasting arms. And the care of God is more profound
than you will ever know. You are swimming in the current of grace. I wanted to quote a portion from a speech offered by Luke Jude. He was a member of this parish for three years. Uh, He was uh, the president of Grove City College's class of 2010, and he was speaking at a graduation dinner. Do they still have those? Okay. So it was a graduation dinner, and he gave this rather unconventional speech uh, to those sitting there. He said, graduation is one of the last universal rituals left in our culture. It is a celebration of personal success. But if our graduation is nothing more than a celebration of personal success, I think we have missed the point. It would be a shame for us, after four years of labor, to graduate, having missed the point. My college experience shaped me more than I imagined it would. Now, I could stand here and recount anecdotes and incredible memories. I could express my excitement to change the world and be all that I can be. But these cliches ignore the reality that always lurks in the background. We often use self-congratulation to hide insecurity that we feel at graduation. Perhaps you are like me and have many less than fond memories. Perhaps you recall the people you've hurt over these four years or the people who have hurt you. Perhaps you have failed to graduate with a sterling GPA that you needed and wanted, the awards you dreamed of receiving but never did, the high-paying job you look forward to that didn't arrive, or that illustrious ring by spring. Perhaps every one of your suite mates has a steady job to look forward to, a wedding immediately following this ceremony, or some reason to call college a success. Perhaps it's simply a look from the one person you know who is happy to see you leave. Every one of us has some deep-seated disappointment or failure that we lug with us under our graduation gowns. The therapeutic response to this pain is simply to say that we are all successes. But that is not entirely true. So let us not rob ourselves of a better way. The Christian message, and quite unpopular on graduation day, is not that we are all successes, but that we have failed, every one of us, from the least to the greatest. And Christ came into the world for failures. That was the point the whole time. The greatest lesson you can learn is not perseverance or good habits but the enduring reality of God's grace. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are the four things I wish I had known when I was 22. You'll have your own lessons that you'll learn, but I think my heart would burst with joy if you discovered these things sooner than me. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.